If you insert gradations of authority within the imminent trinity, gradations that are person-defining and therefore essential for the trinity to be trinity, I think you forfeit the one will of God. You forfeit the trinity's one simple, indivisible essence, and our God is simply trinity uh, no more. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. My name is Ronnie Kurtz, and for today's episode, I have the privilege of being your host. As your usual host, Dr. Matthew Barrett has flipped to the other side of the podcast table and will field questions today instead of asking them. We also have with us today another dear friend of mine and Dr. Barrett, Samuel Parkinson, a fellow PhD student and pastor at Emmaus Church. For you regular listeners, Dr. Barrett needs no introduction, but for those of you who are new to the Credo Podcast, Dr. Matthew Barrett serves as Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and is the founder and executive editor of Credo Magazine. Moreover, Dr. Barrett has written a number of theological volumes, including None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God, Canon Covenant Christology, Rethinking Jesus in the Scriptures of Israel, God's Word Alone, The Authority of Scripture, and many more, including his newest book, and the discussion topic of this episode, Simply Trinity, the Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit. It is good to be with you, brothers. How are you both doing today? Doing doing great. Glad to be on uh, this side of the table for once. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm glad I'm yeah. glad you're over there as well. Sam, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. Um, excited about this episode. Yeah, so. it's good to be with both of you brothers. Uh, definitely. I must say, I, I think the two of you, I'm so I'm I'm so envious at this point. The two of you you have such radio voices, you know. <laughs> I, I, I'm int- I love theology, and so I, why not have a podcast? But I, I fear sometimes my my voice doesn't always, uh, you know, carry like yours does. So. Hey, luckily we care more <laughs> about content than the way the content sounds when you're talking about good it. Thing. That's, <laughs> that's a good thing for me. <laughs> that's exactly right. Okay, well, we have a um, an important conversation to have today, so let's just jump straight into it. Today's episode marks the third installment of a handful of episodes covering Dr. Barrett's newest book, Simply Trinity, as we just mentioned. Listeners, uh, be sure to catch the first few episodes covering the first seven or so chapters in the book as well if you haven't done so yet. However, in this episode, we plan to cover the contents of a single chapter, and that chapter is chapter eight, which is entitled, Is the Son Eternally Subordinate to the Father? Most listeners can guess by that title alone that this chapter will touch on the question of the novel theological view, eternal functional subordination, or eternal relations of authority and submission, EFS, ERAS, however you want to refer to it, the debate around that idea. I plan to turn to you in just a second, Dr. Barrett, but to to lay out some definitions. However, I wanted to make a quick observation. Many of our listeners will be familiar with the debate that took place over this exact idea online over this topic in 2016, kind of over the summer of 2016. Well, ETS in 2016, Dr. Stephen Holmes, who we've referenced in other podcast episodes and who I know we all three appreciate much, uh, he presented on this issue in ETS 2016, and he, 
At the beginning of his presentation, he stated that the blogosphere is a poor place to conduct theological disagreement, and he lamented that the conversation was not happening over peer-reviewed publication. I shared his sentiment, at least in part, as theological discourse taking place primarily over the blogosphere often generates much heat but little light. So just a word of thankfulness as we get underway that this treatment of EFS, ERAS, uh, such an important topic, is in print. I believe that you have presented your arguments with a cool head and an eye towards worship, which we will get to. And I pray that readers, as, as you read the book and listeners, as you listen to this podcast, I, I pray that you will also do so with a cool head and an eye towards worship. It's such a, an important point, Ronnie. Uh, I, I like what Stephen Holmes has said, uh, and, and I know that those who have, are familiar with his writings will appreciate that statement. Um, you know, speaking as an author, and I know he's speaking as an author, there is a process you go through mm -hmm. with writing a book uh, in which there's a very critical reviewed process that is so thorough. It takes time, <laughs> years even. Yeah, I know this sometimes frustrates people because, you know, what, why can't I just write something and be up there? Uh, but with something that actually is published and in print, um, it goes through a very thorough process. And I think Steve Holmes respects that and appreciates that. that you just that, that doesn't happen when, you know, you just uh, go online and post something <laughs> in the heat of the moment, that sort of thing. I will say this, uh, just as a, a, almost a reflection on, on his wisdom there, I think there's two points to make here. One is, I agree with him, uh, there, there needs to be more academic uh, discussions going on. This is part of the problem. In, in the last several decades, uh, the academic discussions have all been in the EFS camp, mm. from systematic the theologies to individual books. So that, that needs to change. And it's mm. only going to change when um, those who are trying to represent biblical and Nicene orthodoxy actually take the time and, and do the rigorous work. I'm so encouraged because I see that happening more and more. We're starting to see a flurry of really great quality publications come out. The second point I want to make, though, is, is sometimes I, th I think missed a little bit, and it's this. Uh, we not only need academia, but we also need to be able to communicate um, in that middle area between, you know, the blogosphere on the one hand and academia on the right, that middle area, which is to uh, pastors mm -hmm. uh, and uh, beginning students and perhaps the theologically minded churchgoer. Uh, I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had where they are just absolutely lost and confused and they don't have, um, they don't have the training yet perhaps to to follow some of these more advanced academic discussions. Um, and so they need us to speak into their context mm -hmm. uh, because, well, they're the ones with boots on the ground actually teaching the Trinity to the masses. And so it's crucial. The other thing that, that I want to, to mention here is that if um, I think there's a bit of a, a risk, and I say this as someone who's, you know, uh, read many, many views books and academic books, if we merely treat the issue as just another view and say uh, a, a views book or another, another chapter in an academic book, uh, the risk there is that those students, pastors, churchgoers, they get the impression that, oh, this is, 
this this is just another view. Yeah, this one is, view of many. That's right. This is just another evangelical option. Oh, it's it's up for even it's up for academic debate. Uh, and if you've read my book, you, you know uh, <laughs> I, I'm trying to convey no. Actually, uh, the discussion is far more serious than that, and so we we don't want to give that impression. So we need to make sure we're actually putting out, yeah, uh, thought through literature that is actually addressing it and taking it on. Yeah, that, that's one of the things I really appreciated about this book is even though it's um, clearly responding to the, the present sort of state of theology in, uh, in academia, but also in the church, it's not reactionary, which, you know, I, I think of in the 20th century, you have figures like Clark Pinnock who went to say our whole theological project needs to be responding, like reacting to whatever questions there are. So, you know, the agenda is set by the questions that are being asked. And even though this book is in a lot of ways responding to a present sort of state of affairs, you're not, you're not going in that direction. You're saying, okay, we're, we're, we are responding to what's happening right now, but we're not going to let these questions set the agenda yeah. of how we do theology. We're going to go back to the tradition. I don't think I could say it better than that, Sam. <laughs> All uh, right. In fact, I think at one point, and again, the whole book is not on EFS or the, the, the book is on, you know, a wider mm. presentation of the Trinity. But yeah. in this, in this chapter, uh, at some point in this chapter eight, I, I do say at some point, why are we letting why are we letting them set the questions on the table? Yes. Actually, uh, we need we need to set different questions on the table that are historically rooted. Um, otherwise, we're letting them set the agenda, and we're, we have to then play by their rules of the game. So let's let's get to definitions then. Uh, so we've we've already mentioned a few acronyms: EFS, ERAS, uh, and the like. And so I would love to kick it to you, Dr. Barrett, just to uh, give listeners a working definition of eternal functional subordination. Yeah, well, thanks for you know asking me to do the impossible. <laughs> <laughs> just a working definition yeah. is all we need. Uh, you know, in, in chapter eight, I spend, uh, you know, many, many pages just trying to present it. Uh, you know, truth be told, actually, I wrote so much more, uh, but then uh, the chapter was already long enough. I thought, okay, I've got, I've got to boil this down. Uh, very hard to do. Uh, yeah, if I can take a, a just a stab at it, just briefly, I, and, and some of this comes out of just uh, not just presentations and that sort of thing, but um, how you know, I, I learned it from books and, and teachers for many years. Um, first off, there's a certain method. Uh, it, it, before we even get into you know, what they believe, there's a certain method at play yeah, here. Absolutely. It's what I, would, I call in the book a, a very um, narrow type of method. Uh, Biblicism. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, often the Trinity is approached by them uh, in a very formulaic way. You you tend to list those verses that teach God is one. Uh, then you list those verses that support the deity of each person, and then you at some point you make that jump to then say, okay, we're going to bring in appeal to this word homoousios to argue that each person, you know, has the same uh, divine nature and is equal. Um, and then you list those verses where two or three persons are mentioned, um, and then then comes that conclusion: God is one in essence, three in persons. Uh, it's a very formulaic approach. Uh, what I would call a, a certain type of proof texting. Um, this 
is then uh, coupled with a certain type of definition, though, of the Trinity that is just assumed, and it comes out in their vocabulary. So the persons are spoken of as, uh, you know, if, if the question is asked, well, what distinguishes these persons? Um, the answer is roles, uh, roles and relationships. And then when they define the Trinity, the Trinity is defined as triune persons in relational community. Um, this eternal relationality, they will argue, then, uh, well, that creates this community or society of persons. And notice the language there of community and society in particular. This is really crucial because mm -hmm. eventually they will go on to argue that, well, then this becomes a pattern, even a prototype for human society. Um, and that being said, um, what years and years ago when, um, you know, we'll talk in a minute about more current uh, updates and, you know, changes, but for years and years and years, decades even, you'll notice there's things missing from even this formulaic approach. Uh, where is eternal generation? Mm -hmm. uh, where is divine simplicity in the, in the uh, classical sense? Uh, those, those type of things are missing. Or why, why is it this is another question. Why is it that, uh, that we can use that word homoousios? Why is the son of the same essence? Those are things that are missing in that type of formulaic approach. Nonetheless, just to, to help try to define it, from there, once the Trinity is defined in terms of a relational community of roles and relationships, a society, a divine society, higher, a type of hierarchy uh, is then introduced, um, in, in which they will argue that the Father alone is supreme among the persons of the Godhead. He alone has ultimate supremacy, they'll say. Uh, he alone is supreme in the Trinity, they'll argue. Um, they'll also say the Father stands above the Son. The Father has absolute and uncontested supremacy, uh, including authority over the Son and the Spirit, on and on and on. And uh, something important to notice is that this type, these type of roles of the Father's supremacy and uh, the Son's uh, submission or subordination, sometimes they use those, you know, choose between those words, but these are person-defining. Uh, mm -hmm. We're not just talking here about the incarnation. We're not talking here about the economy of salvation. These are person-defining within the imminent life of God, uh, actually uh, at one point, they have argued that well, these uh, these are es these are essential. You, you cannot have a Trinity without this type of hierarchy. Now, it's a functional type of subordination. They're they're quick to point out. Uh, they'll argue that uh, on the one hand, uh, the Son, for example, is ontologically equal in essence, but he's functionally subordinate in role or submissive in role. Nonetheless, this is still within the imminent life of God, and uh, this is also, uh, like I mentioned, a person-defining uh, property That's for right. the Son. Now, that being said, other questions then come up, which they answer. Uh, I can't get to all of them here, but uh, in the past, at least, uh, they will go on to say that, uh, that well, they have said at, at certain points that because of the Father's uh, authority here, 
the father it has has even the option. Um, some have said he even acts upon this option to to act uh, without the son. Uh, to and this goes back to his supremacy over the son as comprehensive, all inclusive, absolute. Um, and and this raises the the question, which they're quick to answer: of, Well, does this create jealousy? Uh, if the father can act without the son or the spirit, does this create a type of jealousy of the son towards the father? And they're quick to say, no, absolutely not. Um, even though he can act unilaterally, he chooses. He chooses to include the son and the spirit, and that's very generous of him. Um, in other words, the son is not jealous, they argue, but he accepts his role. Now, when this has been presented, you know, for decades it was presented. When it was presented, um, at times uh, in the past, uh, they were even critical, sometimes rejecting key doctrines like eternal generation. And uh, they would say and said, no, this submission uh, is what defines a son, not eternal generation, mm. which they looked at as not having a biblical proof text mm. or perhaps even being uh, speculative and not, for some, not making sense rationally. Sometimes they would say the same thing about divine simplicity. Um, and uh, that I'll, I'll give a word of update on how that's changed in a minute. But what's also, I should add, what's also crucial to mention here is that in light of this definition of the Trinity, there was a strong presentation, a strong intention, maybe even an agenda at times to then draw the lines straight across to defending complementarianism. That, well, the son's submission within the imminent trinity, this then is the paradigm for women submitting to men, particularly in the church and uh, the home, but, but even, even in larger society. Mm -hmm. This is important to point out because a couple of years ago, there was quite a bit of debate uh, that erupted. Mm -hmm. um, what happened? Well, for decades and decades, let's make this clear, for decades and decades, um, this view was, was taught. And it was uh, it, it was very it's it was very public, very public. Um, President conferences, in schools, in books, and textbooks, some of the most popular textbooks. Um, it's been embraced for many many decades. In in uh, several years ago, when controversy erupted, what happened? Well, first of all, you had uh, a number of individuals, but um, maybe first out of the gate was someone like Liam Gallagher. Uh, pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, who said, "Well, hold on, uh, I'm a I'm as complementarian as is the next is yeah. the next uh, guy or gal, but uh, this is not the way to approach the Trinity, nor should the Trinity be used as our social program." And he went on to then argue that, well, he really challenged this conception of uh, the what he called the persons as a collection of people. Here, I think he's getting at um, this social definition of the Trinity that's present in EFS. And he went on to question, what, you know, when we talk about the inner life of, of the triune God, he went on to question that this would somehow support hierarchy or patriarchy or egalitarianism, whatever, you know, whichever it may be. Uh, many others responded as well. Um, you know, you think of someone like Michael Byrd, for example. And, you know, from that point forward, there was probably, goodness, who knows how many. Yeah. I have stacks and stacks of paper in my office. Um, I, I've yeah. read through actually every single one of them 
Uh, I think I have by now, but it it took me, oh goodness, a good chunk of my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, what was the response? Uh, you had a response from EFS individuals. Um, you know, someone as 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 popular as like a Wayne Grudem, uh, others like Bruce Ware. Though there's other representatives out there as well. Was there any change that took place? Well, that's a difficult question to answer. It's, it's not as uh, clear as some might think. On the one hand, yes, uh, there was a uh, a change with eternal generation. Uh, the, the, they read uh, some of uh, Charles Lee Irons' work, yeah, very good work on uh, the language of uh, generation and begetting, uh, begotten in John's gospel. And they were uh, more or less convinced and said, okay, we're going to accept the doctrine of eternal generation now, mm. which, uh, you know, I, I praise God for that. I mean, there's, there's a lot more to say here, right? Because if you reject the doctrine of eternal generation, that does put you in direct conflict with the Nicene Creed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they accepted the doctrine of eternal generation. Um, so I praise God for that. However, uh, did that mean their position changed? Not necessarily. In fact, I, I, uh, I think it's very clear now as more and more publications come out that uh, although they are affirming eternal generation, they are actually now doubling down mm-hmm. on submission and subordination of the Son. Um, how are they doing this? Well, um, we may not have time to get into all of this, but they're arguing that uh, is. As much as they accept eternal generation uh, as what distinguishes the Son, they are still somewhat critical of the Nicene tradition, uh, and they're very uh, explicit about this because they say, well, that cannot be uh, what alone uh, distinguishes the Son as Son. Instead, they argue that there are two categorical distinctive uh, distinctives. One is um, eternal relations of origin, so the, the Son begotten of the Father, the Spirit, uh, proceeding from the Father and the Son. But there's a second one, and this is um, eternal functional relations or roles of hierarchy. How do they put that together? Well, they argue that uh, this subordination or submission of the Son, for example, flows from Mm -hmm. eternal generation and is even found within eternal generation, they argue. And they still make that distinction that, well, eternal relations of origin, that's ontological, whereas authority submission, that's functional. And so they still want to say, no, we're not. They, they respond to that charge of Arianism and say, no, we're not Arians because uh, we're still saying the son is ontologically equal. Nevertheless, they still continue to use that language of the father's primus, primacy, priority, ultimate authority. At one point, they even still say ontological primacy, which raises some questions. Um, are they... Uh, fully on board with the Nicene way of articulating things? Not necessarily. Um, they are critical of what we would call divine appropriations. By that, uh, we simply mean uh, when we refer to the way Nicaea um, formulated the Trinity, they argued that uh, the, they argued for inseparable operations. Uh, the persons don't just work together, but they uh, they act as one because they are one. Yeah. Uh, they are subsistences of of the same essence. Um, none, nonetheless, um, a particular uh, work in creation, providence, redemption may be appropriated, but in a way 
that is fitting and corresponds to those eternal relations of origin. Mm. Um, the EFSers have been critical of that, uh, sometimes you know, very explicit in their criticisms, saying, "Well, no, this can't be what um, th- this can't be what distinguishes the persons alone." Instead, they've argued that uh, even within the imminent Trinity, these um, these type of distinctions, if, if this is all that distinguishes the persons, it falls short. And then in the economy, if appropriations, if that's it, that too falls short, they've argued. Mm-hmm. And so they go back um, to that social model of, model of roles to say, no, there's something more. And, and here's where they, they double down uh, on, on submission and subordination to say, well, uh, this actually from, flows from and is found within um, within eternal generation. Now, that raises a, a, an important question here. Um, on the one hand, on the surface, it appears as if, oh, there's been a reform that's taken place. But when you keep reading further, you, re- you I think critics are right to point out, actually, uh, there's a sense in which the position's been radicalized um, or taken to, you know, whether you want to use the language of double down or radicalized, uh, as soon as you start saying things like the pro-Nicene Trinity falls short, or when they argue, for example, that their view is different from even contrary to the pro-Nicene tradition, um, and, and here they're, they're I, I give them credit, they're transparent enough now to say, yeah, okay, um, this idea of, of sub- submission and subordination wasn't necessarily right. present with all of the, the fa- you know, in their reading of the fathers. Mm. But at the same time, they're using now, they're using Nicene categories, and this is where I think it gets radicalized. They're using these Nicene, this Nicene vocabulary to, to justify, to justify um, subordination and submission within the imminent life of God. Yeah. If that's the case, um, well, at, at that point, um, it raises the issue of interpretation, but right. it also raises the issue of, okay, uh, are you using are you using uh, this type of functional hierarchy um, it, it, to reinterpret to reinterpret the Trinity? And we can go there next. Yeah, I I just wanted to highlight something real quick, just in light of what you're talking about, because it can seem, you know, if 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 our listeners are uh, sympathetic toward this position, or or even just like you know, most of us here were, were brought up sort of to, to recognize this position. It can almost seem right now that it's like Dr. Barrett, you know, uh, Dr. Barrett and, and, and Carl Truman and, you know, these other guys, they're just, they're just picking on, uh, on these brothers now because, you know, it's almost like we affirm eternal generation. So now leave us alone. But the, the problem is it's a category confusion. So when you say it raises questions, um, when they say, you know, we, we affirm eternal generation, but that it actually, you know, we're, we're, we're now distinguishing um, between the persons, not just in terms of their relations of origin, but also in terms of function. The question is, uh, have we really understood the ontological categories mm-hmm. or are we just now using it sort yeah. of as a, a new way to try to talk about this other category? Because mm-hmm. If we've understood the actual category, it actually doesn't make sense to try to 
say that the persons are defined ontologically by this ontological category and also this functional category. Mm. So this sharp distinction between functional and ontological, um, it's a category distinction from the very beginning. Yeah. And, and another, another difference that should be pointed out, and we'll get to this even more so in a little bit, is while language might be tweaked to sound closer to conciliar conclusions, um, methodologically, we're still pretty far apart. Right. Yes. And those methodological commitments are going to have uh, drastic implications mm. on, on conclusions regarding ontology, regarding conceptual operations, regarding centers of consciousness, and, and many more areas. So let, let's move to the next question then. Um, this is, that was a very helpful kind of setting the conversation in context. So I appreciate that, Dr. Barrett and Sam. Uh, Dr. Barrett, as you, as you start your critique of EFS, you begin with an observation. Uh, even though EFS claims that, that it's got the Bible on its side, right, that it's pure Bible, uh, it is using categories of social Trinitarianism, which is how this particular conversation, chapter 8, relates to the broader conversation of the book in its uh, entirety. So using the, using the categories of social Trinitarianism, uh, this might advance the discussion a bit here, I think. And instead of thinking of EFS as misguided on this issue or that issue, you know, one issue or an another, you are observing that EFS is actually indebted to modern theology. So I'd love for you to kind of talk about yeah. that. I think that this is, this is such an important point. I don't know that I can stress it enough. Um, I think in the flurry of debate, sometimes this is lost. It has been lost. Uh, we tend to, to just go right to, okay, how do we understand the sun? And that, uh, what's being lost, though, it, and I, I, sometimes it's been pointed out, sometimes it, it hasn't, is that, well, hold on a minute, like you were talking about a minute ago, Ronnie, is it, is it the case that when we look at the approach, the method itself, even the way we're using vocabulary and language, is it the case that this is more indebted to the 20th century or to the past, you know, the first through the, the 17th century. Well, I, I have argued, I think the language that they're using, yep. the concepts themselves that they're, they're then inserting into traditional language shows it reveals that actually they're far more indebted to the rise of social Trinitarianism in the 20th century. Now, they will disagree with that. They, they will not like hearing that. But I am, I am convinced that uh, when you study, if you study social Trinitarianism in the 20th century, it becomes so conspicuous. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've mentioned these in some of the, the past episodes, but some of the marks of a social Trinitarianism, well, a starting point and an emphasis not being so much simplicity, but the three persons, some, some rejecting simplicity altogether. Uh, another mark of, of social Trinitarianism, the Trinity redefined as a society or community analogous to a human society. Another mark, uh, persons redefined as three centers of consciousness and will, whether that's explicit at times or mm -hmm. more implied in the yeah. way they're doing uh, Trinitarian theology. Uh, another mark, uh, persons redefined according to their relationships, mm -hmm. roles. Uh, another mark, a large overlap, sometimes a collapse of imminent and economic trinity. Uh, another mark, social trinity becoming a paradigm for social theory, gender being one of them. Mm. I could go on. Yeah. When you when you get through those those different uh, descriptions of social trinitarianism, the parallel 
is uncanny. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it is, uh, I don't, I do not know how you get around it. It, it, it is there. It's present. It's in your face. The difference though, and here's, here's where there is a difference, but not really, is that on the one hand, EFS is using all the language of social Trinitarianism. Um, the difference is they disagree with other social Trinitarians going all the way back to someone like Moltmann. Right. When they say, well, we want a, a social trinity for the sake of uh, any type of uh, equality or egalitarianism in mm-hmm. society, whether it's government or gender, right. uh, EFS is saying, well, we are using our language, which I would argue is social, but we want it for a type of functional hierarchy mm-hmm. uh, and not just within the trinity, but also for society in this case, uh, in, in this case, gender roles. To me, when I when I see that move being done, not just the not just the move from Trinity to society, but the language of roles, relationships, the the uh, very explicit way they define the Trinity as a community of relationships and a society, that jumps off the page and says social Trinitarianism, one oh one. Yeah, one one just quick sign that I think you're right is the phenomenon of the shack, how readily uh, it seems like um, Christians were eager to receive something like that. And I don't know how many conversations I've had with people who say that the shack helped me understand who God is. Mm-hmm. The shack helped me understand the Trinity. You know, I thought the Trinity was, was an obscure doctrine that didn't come into play, but the shack helped me understand it. And the thing is, there's, there's a lot of our evangelical um, brothers who would agree that the shack is the problem, but who might say, well, the problem with the shack is that it's not hierarchical enough. Or the problem with the shack is that you have, you know, God the Father represented as a woman instead of a father or something like that. Whereas kind of what you're saying is, no, the, the fact that a whole generation of Christians were ready to receive this depiction of who God is bespeaks not a poor understanding of hierarchy in the Trinity, but the whole category of social, uh, of society in the Trinity in general. And so, and this is one of the reasons why, even when I look back on the summer of 2016, um, all the debates and everything, you know, I, it, 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 you're, you guys are right that it did, it did generate a lot of heat without a lot of light, but in some ways I'm actually really grateful for it because you know, when, when it was happening for me, it was like, oh no, you know, mom and dad are fighting. <laughs> this is <laughs> so uncomfortable. But what it did is, is it forced me to go look for, for light. Yeah. And, um, you know, C.S. Lewis, uh, talks about how you don't understand the Englishness of English until you learn another language. Yeah. And it's almost like you don't understand how much we have been shaped by modern theology mm-hmm. until you're forced to get yeah. out of the context of modern yeah. theology. And then it's, and it's crystal clear. Everything comes into focus. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. This, this, these social categories are things that we're, evangelicalism is inheriting from uh, modern theologians that we wouldn't really want anything to do with. Yeah, I think some of the things we've talked about so far you know, the danger of conflation, of imminent economic, the uh, idea that we could identify what distinguishes members of the Godhead by 
hierarchical activity. Uh, these kinds of things to some listeners are immediately dangerous, that they hear it and red flags raise immediately yeah. uh, and praise God for that as they should. However, for others, the dangers might not be as immediately obvious. And, mm. and Dr. Barrett, this is one of the things I think you do well in your book is um, in, in the book you state that EFS's understanding of the Trinity comes dangerously close to three heresies. Right. That's a big claim. Mm. Now, for, for clarity's sake, you are not claiming that EFS is committing these heresies, but they're dangerously close to them. And so I want to I take a minute just to talk about these, you know, three heresies that EFS can get dangerously close to. And I'd love, let me just name them and then we can kind of take them one by one. Sure. So, so here's the three heresies you mentioned in the book. You, you say that EFS is dangerously close to committing tritheism, sabellianism, and subordinationism. Yeah. Uh, big claims. So let's talk, you know, each one. So first, tritheism. Well, maybe, maybe we should start here. When we look back at how the Trinity was articulated um, you know, in a previous episode, we talked about those Cappadocian fathers That's right. and how they looked at Scripture and they said, well, the reason that the persons are inseparable in their operation is the reason they work as one is because they are one. Um, this inseparable operation means more than just a cooperation or an involvement of all three persons. The persons are not just um, a collection or cooperation of, uh, you know, different centers of consciousness and will. Um, is if they, you know, they share the same desires or, or like you said, they, they are compatible in their activity, uh, whatever that may be. Rather, they argued that, no, inseparable operations means that every act of God is the single act of the triune God. Uh, there, there are not different acts by different agents, uh, but one act according to the one divine agency. And here they're emphasizing the singularity of will. Uh, as as really essential and foundational then for singularity of operation. That's right. I mean, I could say a lot more about that. Uh, in the last chapter of my book, I, I have a whole chapter deve uh, devoted to that, uh, to inseparable operations. It's so crucial. Now, all that to say, when EFS then starts using this language of roles uh, and functions uh, to, to not just speak of the persons, but as person-defining, to define the persons, well, uh, and it, at times in the past, they, they have even been critical of inseparable operations. Well, if that's the case, if, if they start talking, for example, about uh, primacy, even ontological primacy of the Father, if they ta start talking about um, the motive of the Father, which must be exclusively the Father's, even if his motive is in concert uh, or, or united with mo the motives of the Son's Spirit, well, Notice that language, right? Multiple motives, exclusive motives, that, uh, that does start to raise questions about uh, tritheism. And when they go on to talk about distinct agents, so you have a paternal authority that's essential to the father and his distinct motive, his, his own exclusive purpose, uh, well, multiple purposes distinct agents, that also starts to sound like more ingredients in that direction, especially when you start introducing talk of an authority that's exclusive to the Father and a subordination that's exclusive to the Son. Uh, they may deny now, they may deny multiple wills uh, in the Godhead, but it raises the question, well, if, you go, if you're going to use the, that vocabulary and concept, how can you avoid multiple wills? 
I love what John Webster says, uh, and here I'm going to to to. I brought John Webster in with us. I've, you <laughs> Amen. Know, All right. Um, I, I think he can actually help us here. I don't even know that he was addressing uh, EFS, but it's so relevant. Uh, he says at one point in the economy, well, he warns against the persons describing the persons as quasi-independent agents. He says, "Don't do that." <laughs> But then he makes this profound statement. He says, in the economy, the Trinity acts indivisibly, and the works of the Trinity are to be attributed absolutely to the one divine essence. And then he says this, so it is insufficient to speak of the mutual roles, puts it in quotes, uh, enacted by the persons in the economy, inseparable or co-inherent action is not simply conjoint operation. Common activity is not indistinguishable activity. Uh, John Owen says something very similar when he talks about the persons as undivided in their operations, acting all by the same will, the same wisdom, and the same power. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then he goes on to say, every person is the author of every work of God because each person is God and the divine nature is the same undivided principle of all divine operations. And then he says, this ariseth from the unity of the person in the same essence. Yep. I think it's, it's telling, whether it's Webster or John Owen, um, that, or one and the same, I suppose, um, <laughs> that they don't exclude power when yeah. they're talking about this unity. And they are going to great lengths to yes. emphasize this is a single action out of their way. They're going out of their way to out make Out of their point. way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Out of their way. Uh, in other words, so here's, here's the, what I'm driving at here. If you insert gradations of authority within the imminent trinity, gradations that are person-defining and therefore essential for the trinity, trinity to be trinity, I think you forfeit the one will of God. That's right. Uh, you forfeit the trinity's one simple, um, indivisible essence and our God is simply Trinity uh, no more. That's, that's where, where I'm going in my book. Um, you, you know, I, I realize on the one hand, um, you know, someone can say, oh, I hold to one will. Well, we, we all want to affirm the right things, but whether <laughs> we actually get there with our theological language is, I think, a totally uh, another question, especially when, I'll, I'll, this is the last thing I'll say, if you insert authority and submission within the imminent life of God as person-defining, right? This requires multiple diverse volitional faculties. Mm. Um, and how that can avoid multiple wills in God, I, I, I do not know. Yeah, I totally agree. And this is, I want to come back to something that we said earlier. This is why it's important to not only affirm Nicene conclusions, but Nicene methodology. Yeah. Because the error of the danger of tritheism is why just adding eternal generation to your plate of hierarchy doesn't fix the problem. Yes. Right. Uh, and, and, and to mention another book, you mentioned Webster and Owen. Uh, Glenn Butner has a great book here on the son who learned obedience and um, – one of the things I think that book is helpful for is the idea that the son actually had to learn obedience, yeah. right, uh, and in his human nature. Right. And, and that is so important to keep together unity of essence, unity of will, and several operations, and a 
true Nicene affirmation of Trinitarianism. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's important too. It shows again the relationship between methodology and conclusion. Yeah, even even broadly speaking, like not just with this particular question, but generally how you draw your conclusions matters. So you can't just sort of say, okay, we ended on the same place, everything's all good. The method that you use to get there matters because um, sometimes the method isn't actually uh, consistent with the conclusion, That's right. which I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for that kind of inconsistency, but it just takes one bright student to kind of say, well, let me take this methodology and apply it consistently right. and then the 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 safeguard the boundaries uh, markers of of orthodoxy that we we have inherited through these creeds and confessions are no longer actually helpful mm. because um we didn't actually want end up in those conclusions the right way yeah ironically enough this is a separate conversation but it's a total side note ironically enough if you're looking for modern proponents of something like dialectism you'll often find them amongst EFSers where it's like, uh, or monothletism, I mean. It's like, no, this is the place you should affirm two wills. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's exactly uh, right. Your, yeah. your wills are, are off here, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, um, you, yeah that, that's a great point, Ronnie, to, to basically, to not, to not identify two wills in the incarnate Christ right. yeah. is you, you have to lead to, you have to conclude with multiple wills if if you're saying no christ in his uh hypostatic union has one will then there's no way for you not to conclude with multiple wills in the trinity if you make that move okay so let's go let's move to the next one we, we spent a good amount of time on tritheism so sabellianism i'd yeah. love for you to start us off Dr. yeah Barrett. i'll be quick um when it when it comes to sabellianism i mean on the you know i should say this at the beginning no one no one is going to come out and say, "Oh, I'm a civilian," or, <laughs> or I, "I'm going to, I'm going to." That would make this a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when we're we're saying these things, it's important to qualify that um, uh, the way we do theology. Oftentimes, we have to look at. I, I like, you know, my daughter loves to to cook, and so uh, ingredients with cooking are so important, right? Uh, you go slightly wrong with one ingredient, too much, too little, or the wrong ingredient, and the entire recipe uh, ends up something quite quite different. Yep. Fortunately, I live in a home where my 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 wife and my daughter are just great cooks. Man, lucky man. Um, but if you ask them, the ingredients are crucial. Uh, that's what we're saying here. Do the ingredients, when you look at the theology of, of EFS, do the ingredients uh, open the door to something like Sibelianism? And well, why would that be the case? Well, uh, with 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 any number of these, um, you know, whether it's tritheism or Sabellianism, emphasis or overemphasis is everything, right? Uh, that that can decide things one way or the other. Well, when we look at the way EFS adds this additional category, one that I think Scripture never places within the imminent Trinity, uh, functional relations of hierarchy or authority and submission. Well, they say that these functions are not accidental, but essential to the persons. They're not optional, but they're necessary. And notice, well, such functional relations, they're social in the way they define them, social to the very core, I would argue. Well, the persons of the Trinity then are, are no longer defined by ontological relations alone, but they are now defined by social relationships of, of, of hierarchy. This type of emphasis on functionality, that's the key word, 
but within the imminent life of God, well, it raises the question, how can EFS avoid becoming, uh, turning the Trinity into mere societal activities mm. of hierarchy? That's where the question of, of you know, are, are, is this, are these ingredients for Sibelianism? That's where that question starts to be raised, um, especially when they say things like the Father doesn't necessarily need the Son and the Spirit to act in creation and salvation. He can even act unilaterally. That, too, raises that same type of uh, question. Does this open the door to Sibelianism? Does the Son and Spirit, must they wait upon the Father, wait their turn until the Father decides they are then, then eligible for this action? Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's helpful. Do you have anything to add there for Sibelianism, Sam? Okay, yeah. so let's move to the last one, uh, which is subordinationism. This one might be the most obvious given some of the um, commitments of EFS, but I, I still think it's worth uh, taking some time for. Yeah, I call this one the Achilles heel. Yeah. Um, not that the others are not crucial, but uh, this is the big one. And I would say, you know, to listeners, you know, dig in to chapter eight. I, I've, uh, there I elaborate on it at great length. Uh, but let me see if I can just put it in a nutshell. You know, earlier... Um, I think, Sam, you alluded to this when you said, what's going on with these categories of uh, ontological and functional within the imminent life of God? Mm. I argue, yeah, you've got a point. Uh, I, I think that these categories, they sound neat and tidy, uh, but what do they mean? And are they fallacious to begin with? Mm. Are they novel? Uh, you just don't see, um, you just don't see the great tradition uh, deciphering in this way. Um, all that to say, when we talk about, why, why is it that, that they don't work? Well, when we talk about the imminent life of God, we always speak in terms of ontology. Uh, all that is in God is God. Uh, it, all, all that is in God is ontological. Otherwise, it wouldn't be God. Yep. <laughs> uh, so what distinguishes plurality in the simple God uh, is not something functional, but personal. And by personal, I mean hypostases, uh, to be exact, right? So the, the way we've put this in, you know, the, the way that the pro-Nicene puts this is that the essence has three modes of subsistence. Well, it doesn't get any more ontological than that. If you project societal roles into the imminent trinity, the persons are no longer subsistences alone, but distinct agents cooperating to form the society or community in this case, a community of, of a functional hierarchy, that may fit with a social trinity. Uh, but it is anything but biblical, and I would argue anything but Nicene orthodoxy. What's, what's going on here? Well, we have to come back to, the, to the, the question of what is the connection here between a person and essence? Why is it, for example, that the sun is, um, on the one hand, EFSers will, will agree when they say the sun is equal to the father, uh, he possesses the same nature that the Father possesses. But the question I ask is, why? Mm. Why is that the case? And that's not necessarily a question that, that they answer. The answer actually is repeated over and over and over again uh, from the Nicene Creed all the way through the great tradition. The answer is the Son is begotten from the Father's essence. Yeah. Athanasius put it this way. He said the Son is ever the offspring of the Father's essence. Cappadocian said the same thing, and as you look both east and west, they all reiterate this same truth. 
all that to say, you know, Ronnie, you were talking about Trinitarian grammar and how, you know, it's not just where we end up, but how we get there. Well, it's not enough then to just throw around that word homoousios That's as exactly if, right. yeah. well, we, we affirm homoousios, therefore, you know, we have no problem if we hold to EFS. Hmm. No. What does homoousios actually mean? It means not just that there's an equality, but it means that, uh, well, the son is begotten from the father's essence. That not only explains his distinction, but also his equality. We have to be careful here because if we then start throwing around homoousios as if it's just kind of a label to check on our orthodoxy card, meanwhile, we're actually inserting uh, subordination submission within the imminent trinity. Mm. We put ourselves in a really difficult situation of having to explain how in the world we can still affirm homoousios. Another way to think about this is that when EFSers object that they only mean the son is inferior in authority, so mm -hmm. person, not in essence or divinity, let's not forget, this is so crucial, right? Let's not forget the son is, he is a subsistence of the divine essence. Mm -hmm. I can't put enough emphasis on that, that word is. So when you start saying, for example, that uh, this submission or subordination is person-defining, well, wait a minute. If the persons are subsistences of the essence, what then is to keep subordination from the essence itself? Mm. Uh, I think a, a far better route here is how the, the Athanasian Creed protects us from that, from that danger when it essentially violating simplicity. Um, when it says the Father is Almighty, the Son is Almighty, and the Holy Spirit Almighty, and yet they are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. EFS does affirm a greater Almighty in the Father, mm. and not just a greater Almighty, but at times they speak in terms of a greater glory. Mm -hmm. I do not know how you square that uh, with divine simplicity, and likewise the Son's, uh, the son's equality. Yeah, that I, I, this seems as, as good a place as any to kind of put my cards out on the table and say that this chapter was hard for me to read. <laughs> I'm sure it was hard for you to write. Um, there's a part of me that, you know, it, it was hard for me to read because I was, I was, you know, worried about you, <laughs> honestly thinking. I, I couldn't get the G.K. Chesterton quote out of my head where he says, I believe in getting into hot water. It keeps you clean. <laughs> So I was thinking at least Dr. Barrett's going to walk out of this, you know, squeaky clean. But no, seriously, part of why this was so hard for me to read is some of the figures that you're talking about in this chapter are heroes of mine. They have um, helped me tremendously. I mean, you mentioned Wayne Grudem, and I'm, I'm one of many um, brothers who, in, in, you know, in his early 20s, um, that big, fat, systematic theology was such a help for me. I remember distinctly reading his chapter on divine providence and seeing him articulate my anti-Calvinist position mm. accurately, and then he went and tore it to shreds. You know, mercifully, <laughs> you know, I'm grateful for it. He tore it to shreds. And so big reason why I'm a Calvinist is because of uh, what, he was, what he was doing. And so... Um, so I'm grateful for these figures, and yet I'm reading direct quotes that you have in this in this book of saying things like the Father alone is 
worthy uh, is uh, deserves ultimate glory and praise, and the Son deserves pen ultimate glory and praise. And so, part of me is saying, you know, say it ain't so, because I don't know. You know, we're we're kind of getting ahead to to the the question about worship, but even on a practical standpoint, you know, it it's hard for me to see how a right conclusion from some of these sort of um, category distinctions. It's hard for me to to imagine how a right conclusion doesn't lead to uh, let me just worship the Father exclusively, so that I don't accidentally cross that line of you know, accidentally rendering to the son penultimate uh, glory when I should be rendering him penultimate glory. Let's just worship the father and not the son or the spirit just to keep safe. And I, I know that, you know, that's not something that they would want a, a conclusion that they would want us to draw, but even how close this kind of brushes up against a uh, ontological subordinationism, it leaves me sort of concluding, well, wouldn't it be safer for us to, to do that? Just worship the Father and not, not worship the Son? You know, if, if, we, if it's possible for us to commit this mistake of accidentally rendering to the Son a glory that only the Father deserves? You know, when, when we look at EFS, uh, certainly, and, and it's important to say this, you know, certainly they will deny an ontological subordination. But, um, and so we, we want to make, we want to, 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 you know, give them credit for that. But at the same time, uh, and, and this, you know, goes to, to your point, Sam, at the same time, uh, it, when we are still saying, well, there's a different type of subordination or submission, a functional one, but it's within the imminent trinity, right. it's, it's person defining. Yes. Uh, it even is inserted within the imminent life of God due to eternal generation. At that point, all these other questions then, and, and one of them even in terms of doxology, get raised. Yes. Uh, so, you know, to be clear to our, for our listeners, it's not that, you know, uh, we're saying they uh, overtly go the direct, they, they say, oh, I'm going to go the direction of ontological subordination. They're denying that. Yeah. But the way that their theology is formulated, the way that uh, they modify those key Nicene concepts, well, at that point... Uh, it raises the question of, well, are you consistent? For the sake of time, I think this is a great place to land the plane for discussion one, part one of our uh, podcast on eternal functional subordination. And when we come back, even though I might sound like a broken record, I do want to pick back up the conversation regarding methodology. And I have two specific questions that I want to ask you, Dr. Barrett, regarding methodology. But just to recap for listeners so far in episode one, we gave a definition of uh, eternal functional subordination or eternal relations of authority and submission and kind of set the conversation in context. And then we talked about the borrowing from modern theology and social Trinitarianism that happens within the EFS articulation of the Trinity. And then in this last question, we talked about the three different um, heresies that EFS comes dangerously close to uh, in their articulation of the Trinity. So we'll land the plane there and we'll pick back up the conversation regarding methodology. So listeners, be sure to tune in for episode two and we will um, be, be covering more on this vital conversation there. Thanks for listening. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith, 
and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.